You want to go ahead and read the thing? Okay. It was a routine flight, one that the crew had flown dozens of times. A short flight, New York to Miami. The usual flight time, a little over two hours. The aircraft was the reliable and sturdy Lockheed L-1011, given the name of Aircraft 310. It was just after Christmas of 1972, and this would be its 502nd flight, with so few issues that it appeared to be quite charmed indeed. The last maintenance that it had needed was that a first officer's mock meter was .0062 low and had been replaced. As the uneventful flight approached Miami to land, the first officer noticed that the light indicating that the landing gear was locked properly in place was not illuminated. The cockpit crew was sure it was just a faulty light, but just to be safe, they sent their engineer down to check on it. They remained in constant contact with the air traffic control tower. Less than 10 minutes later, and over 18 miles away from their landing runway, 101 of the 163 people aboard were dead. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the story of Eastern Airline Flight 401. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Greg, your host for this episode. And I'm his sister, Ella, your co-host, returning after a short absence. Yes, and you were missed. Happy to be back. Very glad to have you back. Yay! Uh, So our main sources for this episode come from the Flight 401 Survivors and History website, contemporary articles from 1972 and 1973, and the National Transit Safety Board's report on the crash. Uh, Let's start with a brief history of the airplane. Um, The L-1011 was made from 1968 through 1984 as a wide-body alternative to the Boeing 747. Eastern Airlines was the first airline to fly the planes in 1972. They had commissioned 12 of these airplanes from Lockheed, and N310EA was the 10th of those 12. So that is that is our, our main plane for this episode. Okay. Uh, the crew aboard Flight 401 were very experienced. Uh, their captain was Bob Loft, a 32-year veteran pilot. Their first officer was Bert Stockstill, who had come up through the Air Force and had more flight hours on the L-1011 than even Bob Loft had. And the flight's engineer and second officer was Don Repo, with a spotless safety record and the one most responsible for pre-flight instruments checks, uh, which came back with no issues. This same crew had flown from Tampa to JFK Airport in New York earlier that day as Flight 164, and now they'd be heading home as Flight 401. I didn't realize how common this was in the uh, in the world of the f- of people who fly for a living. What? Um, like heading out, you know, it's like if you live in, I don't know, you live in Miami, mm-hmm. you'd fly from Miami to JFK and then fly from JFK back home. And like that was your day. Yeah. Like that's, it's. Kind of neat. It's all commute. Yeah. <laughs> Your whole day is commuting. Um, the flight was a simple short flight from JFK to Miami. Mm-hmm. They'd take off around 9 p.m. and be touched down before midnight. The red eye. The flight plan took them south of Norfolk, Virginia, and then out to sea. However, they'd had a stroke of good fortune in the flight schedule. Mm-hmm. And instead of having to pass east of Jacksonville and head 155 miles out to sea, flight control gave them a lane that was more inland and thus quicker to get to Miami. 
The flight had a mix of ages aboard, as most commuter flights do, uh, from a two-month-old infant to some folks in their 80s heading down to the sun. An executive representative for Eastern Airlines was on board. Uh, There was a quiet marriage proposal. Uh, There was a grad student gently snoring in his seat. Most of the folks were dozing when the fastened seatbelts light came on and the captain's voice came from the cockpit to welcome them all to 70-degree Miami on a beautiful night. Mm. Now, just ahead of Flight 401, another plane was having some trouble. National Airline Flight 607 was suffering from a hydraulic leak and couldn't get their landing gear down. The crew of 401 listened in on the radio chatter as 607 called in for an emergency landing in fire trucks. The whole cabin breathed a sigh of relief when 607 touched down safely and without incident. It meant that 401, however, would need to be routed to a different runway, which wasn't a problem. Instead of landing on runway 9 right, they'd switch to landing on runway 9 left. Not a huge change. Now, as 401 approached, Bob Loft ordered that the landing gear be dropped and contacted the Miami Tower Controller. The crew went down their landing checklist. Ignition, good. Brake system, good. Radar, good. Hydraulic panels, checked. And the gear was down. Except according to the instruments in the cockpit, the landing gear was not down. The nose gear light was off. Mm. While they checked the problem, the tower instructed them to climb back up to 2,000 feet and circle around again. Having just had Flight 607 come in with bad landing gear, they didn't want to take any chances. Yeah, what are the odds? Right? It's weird. So the crew checked and rechecked the light, which stayed stubbornly off. Once they'd made their turn back away from the airport and out toward the Everglades, Loft ordered Stockstill to put on the autopilot while they tried to fix the problem. Loft and Stockstill remained to check the light mechanism, while Repo went down into the forward avionics bay to check the landing gear by sight. Um, I I found out that the forward avionics bay is also known as the hellhole. Nice. Um, (laughs) It's accessible through a trapdoor in the cockpit and allows somebody to get their eyes on the landing gear and anything else that might be going on under the plane. So literally he was like sticking his head kind of under the plane to see if the landing gear was down. That sounds logical, but I've never thought of that being a real thing. Yeah. That's a thing. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, so Stockstill and Loft struggled with the light assembly. First, they were unable to get the old bulb out, and then they were having difficulty getting a replacement bulb in. And apparently the mechanism is such that it's very easy to accidentally put the bulb in sideways. And once you do that, it's like never going to come back out. So they were really fighting with this light bulb. <laughs> is this one of those tiny little... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just one of those little tiny indi- indicator lights. Jeez. Okay. Right? Uh Now, the air traffic controller noticed that Flight 401's altitude was much lower than it was supposed to be, and he radioed in asking if they were doing all right. The only response he got was that they were ready to turn around and come back for another approach, and the controller gave them permission and a runway. And they're on autopilot at this point, right? They're on autopilot, right. So the plane began to turn back toward Miami. The following exchange was recovered as part of the in-flight recorder. Quote, Stock still. We did something to the altitude. Loft. What? Stockstill. We're still at 2,000, right? Loft. Hey, what's happening here? At about 20 seconds later, the flight controller radioed in again. Uh, Eastern 401, are you retesting the equipment? Eastern 401, I've, uh, I've lost you on the radar, your transponder. What's your altitude now? Eastern 401, Miami. End quote. After a few moments of silence, National Air Flight 611 came over the radio. Quote, 
Miami Tower, this is National 611. We just saw a big explosion. Looks like it was out west. I don't know what that means, but I thought you should know, end quote. Oh, that's not a good sign. The plane hit the muck of the Everglades, going 227 miles per hour. Oh, no. The left wing cut into the swamp first. The main fuselage broke apart as it struck the ground, skidding and skipping from its first impact with the ground until it came to a stop. The the plane traveled more than a third of a mile. Inside, the passengers were smashed around or thrown clear. A ball of flame burst from the back of the plane through the front, likely caused by electrical wires touching the spilling jet fuel and oil. Some passengers drowned in the mud, held under by their twisted seats and the tons of material on on top of them. One woman was thrown 210 feet, her neck broken on or before impact. One woman was found still sitting in her seat, dead with internal injuries. A two-month-old child had been sitting on her mother's lap, was thrown over 40 feet, and was found still alive in a twisted pile of debris. Another three-year-old child was thrown 300 feet along with his mother. Both died before they hit the ground from the sheer impact forces. As the plane disintegrated, people lived or died at the whims of the physics at play. The number two engine, mounted at the tail, stopped much further along than the rest of the wreckage, assumedly because it continued to provide thrust until it was too damaged. One of the most surreal thing for the survivors must have been the rubber life raft sitting completely inflated and intact just past the remains of the passenger cabin. Its emergency inflation mechanism had been activated as it had been thrown clear. The plane crashed into the Florida Everglades. For those of you not familiar with the world's largest flooded grasslands ecosystem, think of it as a grassy swamp that's nearly 8,000 square miles or 20,000 square kilometers. And it's full of alligators. And it's full of alligators, yes. It's full of grass, frogs, and alligators. That's what lives there. Um, At its highest point, it's 25 feet above sea level. Oh, jeez. Where... Yeah. I had no idea. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's real low. Yeah. It's really low. Uh, Where Flight 401 crashed, it's about eight feet above sea level. Yikes. Now, the main means of travel through the dense alligator and frog habitat is by airboat. Do you know what an airboat is, I do. I love looking at them. Um, (laughs) My dream is to ride on one someday. They're really loud. Yes. They're really fast. Yes. And they are really shallow, right? They have a really shallow draft. Yes. That's that's the whole point of them. They're, it's basically a flat-bottomed boat meant to travel in places where you can't actually put a propeller below the water and it's line. it's powered by a so, huge fan. Oh, it exactly. Looks so yes, it's got this propeller assembly on the back of it that looks like a giant fan. It's fantastic. However, keep in mind that it's just past midnight. It's pitch black. You're in a crashed plane in the middle of the Everglades. The hope of rescue is slim. Yeah. Fortunately, Bud Marquise was on his way. Does he have an airboat? He is, Yay. yes. Bud, Bud Marquise was an airboat pilot who had a side gig catching frogs in the Everglades. Um, he and his friend Ray Dickinson had just about 30 pounds of frogs from their night's hunting when they saw a plane flying far too low, followed by a huge orange fireball lighting up the night sky. Without hesitation, he put his foot on the throttle and headed toward the blast. See, there are two kinds of people in this world. 
people who run away from disasters and people who run towards exactly. them. Yep. 25-year-old flight attendant Beverly Raposa awoke to find herself covered in jet fuel and swamp water. Oh. She was able to free herself from her restraints and found another flight attendant nearby who was mumbling that she wanted to wake up. Which, that's heartbreaking. Um, Beverly began to work to rally the survivors towards her, reasoning that they stood a better chance of being found if they were together. Mm -hmm. Quote, You could just barely move about. You fell over the metal pieces and the sawgrass, and it was hard to move around. I tried to get off the hunk of fuselage we were on, and it was just impossible to move. You sank, and you fell, and you cut yourself even more. I think personally I was just as frightened as anyone else, and I knew the possibilities. But these were my people. They were my responsibility, and this was my job as flight attendant. End quote. So Beverly is also running towards the explosion. Beverly is in the middle of the crash. That is really impressive. Yeah. She, she woke up from the crash, yeah. Uh, to help fight off shock and panic, she began to lead the survivors in Christmas carols, because keep in mind, this is December 29th, right after Christmas. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, while they slowly came together and assessed the survivors' condition. Uh, this ran into a problem when nobody could remember the lyrics to Frosty the Snowman, sure. but they, they rallied. Um, the noise would also help them be found. Yeah. One of the other flight attendants was in early shock and everyone was freezing cold in the wet marshland. Beverly gave the other attendant an infant that she had freed from their seat and told her to look after the baby. Uh. The child's parents were dead a few yards away. Oh, God. Okay. Now, another factoid that's very odd. Um, almost everyone is basically nude. Um, Weird. Yeah. Uh, the force of the impact had disintegrated a lot of survivors' clothing. How One does man it do was... that without injuring people, like, horribly? Oh, they were still injured, but, yeah. It was like... Like it, it's going to blow your, like... your clothes off, but it's yeah. not going to hurt your skin? Oh, no, it hurt everybody. Nobody walked away from this uninjured, basically. Um, that was wild. Okay. One man was found with only the elastics from his socks oh, intact. Oh, man. Right? That is rough. Like, it's just weird um all right so bud marquise had to stop in the blackness a few times he was a lifelong everglader but finding the wreck in the night was difficult the fire had consumed its available fuel and the surviving attendants were telling people not to light matches given how many people yeah. were drenched in jet fuel <laughs> but they've got the christmas carols yes and bud marquise was navigating by the sounds of screams and the songs yep he found the wreck by literally running into it, bending the front of his airboat oh. on a piece of the wreckage. Right away, he found a man who was face down in the water with his legs and back broken and was unable to keep his head up. Mm -hmm. uh, Marquise and Dickinson propped the man up against the side of the boat and prioritized uh, the people who were struggling to get out of the water. Now, airboats are not huge. No, they're not huge. They're they're. They're basically two people craft. Right. But they were there to help. Now, the slogan on the door of the Opalaka Coast Guard Station is the busiest air-sea rescue unit in the world. Really? And they, they, they may very well be. Uh, they have over 300 personnel operating out of that station. That is wild. Okay. Right? With five helicopters and five fixed-wing aircraft. I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense because, like, they're basically in Miami 
And there's got to be a lot of stuff that needs Coast Guard response in that area, hmm. right? Sure. Uh, in, in 1972, they were the first emergency rescue vehicle on scene. Bud Marquise could see the helicopter circling, but they were looking in the wrong place. He lit his helmet flashlight and began waving it around. None of the flight crew had flashlights because they were not standard safety issue yet. The Coast Guard helicopter 1376 spotted Bud's helmet flashlight and reported the first findings from the crash site. Body, debris, and the remains of the tail section. The copter's first radio contact back to the station was, quote, we've got one hell of a mess out here. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, The Opelika station dispatched all of their helicopters, but they ran into a problem. There was nowhere to land. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Because it's all marsh. And their commander later stated, quote, everywhere we tried to land, there were bodies, end quote. That's horrible. Now, also on site was former NASA astronaut and then Eastern Airlines Vice President of Operations, Colonel Frank Borman. Uh, He had been awoken by a phone call describing the crash and had driven to Miami and personally chartered a helicopter to carry him out there. Upon landing, he was able to find and extract one of the flight attendants and two passengers, ordering the helicopter to take them to the nearest hospital while he stayed behind to help. Now, There's a flood control levy about 100 yards from the site, and they were able to land helicopters and move ambulances up to that point. Uh, Something that really struck the rescuers working the operation was that the survivors were eerily silent. Hmm. Very few cries or screams, just quiet breathing and children asking for their parents. Now, both pilots were found dead in the cockpit. Mm -hmm. Stockstill was hung up in a tangle of wires and metal near the ceiling, and Loft was crushed beneath the instrument panel. Um, One person, uh, one of the first responders, reached Loft before he died, uh, and all that Loft was apparently saying was, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Uh... Repo was down in the avionics bay, and he was barely alive. He was extracted successfully, uh, but died in the hospital. Like Repo, a few people who had survived the initial crash died of their wounds hours or days later. Of the 176 people aboard Flight 401, 103 died due to the crash. That's actually a higher survival rate than I would have thought, given... It is, and we're going to get into why. Crashing into the Everglades likely saved a lot of lives because the marshy waters helped absorb a lot of the impact energy from the crash and the ever-present mud caked onto people and blocked up some survivors' wounds, keeping them from bleeding out at the scene. Yeah, but didn't they at, see bacterial infections as well? From the absolutely. Mud? Oh, God, yes. But that's a problem that can be solved by hospitalization. Um if they had just been there to bleed out, they never would have made it to the hospital in the first I see what place. You're they, a lot of them did get some really nasty infections and needed to be treated in hyperbaric chambers. Oh dang! But, okay. but they survived. Like that's pretty cool. Any alligators? No alligators are reported to have predated on any of the people there. Okay. So for you alligator fans out there, that's uh, not me. Sorry. So, in the days that followed, Eastern Airlines and their employees faced a barrage of questions and accusations. Um, In addition, the flight crew was dealing with their own grief. They had all been accounted for except for one flight attendant. Her body would not be found for uh, for another couple of days, still strapped into her seat. Hmm. 
The National Transit Safety Board began their investigation and found the interior of, of the cockpit surprisingly intact. All of the throttles were engaged and the flight recorder was intact and they were able to salvage the readings from the autopilot computers as well. It took nearly two months, but they were able to reconstruct with certainty what had happened that night. So here's what happened. The flight had been fine until their approach to Miami. When the landing gear indicator light failed, they needed to ascertain whether it was due to the gear failing or the light failing. So they'd aborted the landing and were ordered to climb back up to 2,000 feet and circle back. When they recycled the gear and the light still didn't come on, Loft sent Repo down into the hellhole to get visual confirmation of the landing gear's position. About 50 seconds later, halfway through the airborne U-turn, Loft told Stockstill to engage the autopilot while they disassembled the light fixture. The plane stayed level for the next 80 seconds, then dropped 100 feet and leveled out again for the next 120 seconds. Then it began a gradual descent, so slight that the crew couldn't notice it. An altitude warning went off, but the pilots didn't notice it among the general din of alert tones, and Repo, who was the man usually closest to that particular warning, was below. The pilots were unconcerned until the very last second when they noticed the altitude just before the crash. The fault, apart from both pilots being involved with the light bulb issue and thus not watching the instruments, lay with the autopilot. This particular autopilot had a feature slash bug where it would disengage its altitude control if its control column was moved. A slight tap, a bump, or a jostle would be enough to do it, and it had likely been bumped with the pilots moving around the cabin dealing with the light or when Loft had turned around to send Repo down to the avionics bay. Okay, that seems like a serious flaw. It's a very serious flaw that was pretty much undiscovered until after this crash. Because you put the autopilot on so you can like go to the bathroom and get a cup of coffee, right? <laughs> you put the, ilo the you put I'm the autopilot pilot. on. Right. Uh, neither am I. Uh, but but you put the autopilot on so that you can maintain your your speed and bearing. Right, but Not it's supposed to maintain altitude too, isn't it? It's supposed absolutely, to keep you flying yes. in a straight line. It's supposed to keep you flying at your flight level, yes. Um, this one, if you bumped the control stick, it would ascend or descend based on what you had, how you had bumped into it, and they didn't know this. I don't like that at all. Uh, not at all. Yeah. So instead of cruising at 2,000 feet, the plane just slowly and steadily descended until it hit the Everglades. Oh, nightmare. 103 deaths due to a burned out $12 light bulb. Okay, so was the landing gear actually down? The landing gear was found to be down and locked properly, oh, by the dang. way. That is horrible. Yeah. Now, everybody likes a good ghost story. Wait. <laughs> so I'm going to share a whopper of one with you. Okay. Another L-1011 owned by Eastern Airlines was flying to Mexico City when one of the flight attendants happened to glance into the window of the onboard oven and saw the face of Don Repo mouthing a warning about fire. Ah. After the plane landed, it was discovered that one of the engines was damaged, so a ferry crew was supposed to fly it home for repairs, but shortly after takeoff, another engine flamed out and they had to make an emergency landing on a single engine. And when was this? And that... That was in 1973, okay. and that was the beginning of the sightings. 
Pilots and flight attendants of the other L-1011s began to report seeing the flight crew at various times. Don Repo when a mechanical issue was about to strike, Captain Loft when a navigation issue came up, and Pilot Stockstill when dangerous conditions were around. Each time, the men would issue advice and see to it that the flight landed safely and then vanish. The explanation for their haunting appearances was chalked up to flight crew superstition until somebody figured out that the ghosts of 401 only appeared on planes that were using parts that Eastern Airlines had salvaged from Flight 401. Oh, okay. That's not cool. We have come across this before. Yeah. If a flight crashes that badly and so many people are killed, you have to write yeah. it off. Like if a ship sinks. No, 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 no. You you are absolutely right to be mad about this, but you're mad at the wrong person. We're going to get there. I do not like so, this. Okay. Okay, good. I'm glad you don't like it because nobody's supposed to like this. This is, this is one of the most insulting things that's happened about this thing. So author John G. Fuller published an account of these hauntings in his 1976 book, The Ghost of Flight 401, uh, for which he quickly sold the TV movie rights, and these hauntings entered the public consciousness of the 1970s. The movie is, uh, I mean, it's not great. It's very made for TV, Mm -hmm. um, but it it exists. Now, Fuller wrote that the airlines were trying to cover up the story by replacing logbooks and erasing in-flight recorders. He also stated that an unnamed mechanic who wished to remain anonymous had worked in a storeroom full of perfectly good L-1011 parts, but they weren't allowed to be installed in any aircraft because they'd come from Flight 401. So between the unverifiable claims, appeal to conspiracy, and untraceable sources, I hope our listeners have their con artist hackles up. Because there will always be people who like to cash in on a tragedy. So we're going to talk about this extremely distasteful book. Now, Fuller's previous books were a bunch of UFO books. Again, stories made up out of whole cloth, but let's not hold that against him just yet. I love a UFO story. Right. Eastern Airlines wanted to sue Fuller for his claims that they were attempting to bully their employees into silence as obvious slander. But Colonel Frank Borman, remember him? Hero of the day. Mm -hmm. uh, Convinced them not to give him the extra free publicity. There is no record of any Eastern Airlines employee, flight crew or otherwise, of coming forward with a ghost story. Ever. The whole story seems to have stemmed from a single quote from that Mexico City flight which did happen, but of which none of the crew ever claimed to see Don Repo, where after the emergency landing, one of the pilots quipped the following quote, quote, scary, for a moment I thought Repo's ghost was on the plane, end quote. Okay, that was a terrible So he case. found that quote, and he just made up this whole thing. And the real proof is in the crash itself. Looking at the wreckage, which is extensively photodocumented, Lays proof to the claim that the ghosts haunt L-1011s that have salvaged pieces of 401. Not a single component was salvageable. Okay, Which you. you, dear listeners, can see for yourself from the pictures of the destroyed plane available on any simple Google search. Um, what about the light bulbs? It, it, it makes me mad. So, with no ghosts seen by any real people, no salvaged components installed on other planes to be haunted, and no mysterious mechanic with a warehouse of haunted L-1011 parts, this book lines up nicely with the rest of Fuller's oeuvre, which is fiction. I'm going to quote from Brian Dunning's piece on this because I like it so much. Uh, Quote, Like so many cases, its exploitation of a tragedy for financial gain and publicity was disrespectful to both the victims and the survivors. End quote. Dorothy Loft, 
uh, Bob Loft's widow, and her two children sued Fuller for invasion of privacy over the book. They claimed that using the deceased's name for commercial purposes of selling books about the fatal crash, not to mention the movie based on the book, and referring to the decedent as a reappearing ghost were in bad taste, to say the least. Can you sue over that? The problem is they lost their suit and their appeals. The court citing, among other reasons, that the claimants were found to be actors or participants in newsworthy stories or events. Hmm. And that the book, a, quote, non-fictionalized account based on the author's own investigation, end quote, I just heavy air quotes around that entire statement, fell under the legitimate public interest exception. That's interesting. So they lost their lawsuit. So that's the last I'm going to talk about that book. But anybody out there who writes in and is like, oh, my God, did you know that this thing was haunted? No, it wasn't. Um, this dude made it up to cash in on a tragedy, and those kind of people shouldn't be supported. Now, for his heroism on the night in question, Bud Marquise was given the Humanitarian Award from the National Air Disaster Foundation. And I want to see what this trophy looks like. The Airboat Hero Award Whoa. from the American Airboat Search and Rescue Association. I bet it comes with Amazing. frogs. Uh, yes. Marquise was 78 at the time and said... Oh my God, you're kidding. No, no, no. At the time he was given the award. Okay. Uh, and said, quote, I think it's nice, but I don't think I really deserve a lot of hullabaloo over this. Oh. End quote. Nice guy. Uh, he passed away in 2008, the year after he received those awards. Uh, his partner that night who was helping him was Ray Dickinson, and Ray Dickinson had died in 1988. So after many years, just in time for the 50th anniversary of the crash, a memorial monument was erected at Miami Springs. It's a simple granite memorial with a plaque listing the people who died and the remaining survivors gathered to celebrate each other and remember. And that is the story of Eastern Airline Flight 401. Well, that is horrific. We have not done a plane crash in a long time. A bit, yeah. It's Um, been a minute. I think because they're so unpredictable. Yeah, and there's not usually a lot of, like, how could we solve this moving forward things? Like, obviously, you know, it's just, it's hard to talk about plane crashes because they're so tragic, and they usually have a set of circumstances that are so far outside of, like, what is usually repeated. Yeah. Um, Interesting little factoid, by the way. Flight 401 is one of three planes to crash into the Everglades. Really? Yeah. It's weird, right? In the same spot? No. I mean, the Everglades is huge. <laughs> but, yeah. Interesting enough. So what drew you to this story? What made you want to research this and talk about this? So I had heard about this way, way, way back. Uh, when I was in grade school, I had this book called Apparitions. Mm. And it was a book that was designed to encourage critical critical reading skills, Right. So you're supposed to read the story and then answer these questions that got you thinking about the story. And I remember reading about the ghosts of airline flight of Eastern Airline Flight 401. And I remember looking at the questions of this thing. And one of the first ones is, do you think that the that the ghosts are haunting other airplanes or something like that? 
And, you know, my like fifth grade self was was very like, no. So I wanted. So this is one of those stories that's kind of been kicking around in the back of my head for a while. And I recently stumbled across the 50th anniversary, uh, an article about the 50th anniversary um, Mm -hmm. monument that they put up. And I was like, you know what? Let me look more into this. So first of all. It's so much more of an interesting crash. There's so many more factors that contributed to it from like the horrifying thing of a guy just bumped something with his hip and everybody dies. That is awful. Yeah. Right? To the fact that the plane hitting the Everglades was like a best case scenario Hmm. where if you're going to crash like the between the grass and the water so much of the energy of the impact Mm -hmm. gets absorbed and reflected back which i think is what shredded most people's clothing but it also gives you a higher percentage chance of surviving less than half of the people aboard survived but that's still way more than if they'd piled into like the side of a mountain or crashed on an airplane runway even and i've always been fascinated with Airline crashes that are so much simpler, like they're they're the airline crashes where it's like the plane is flying at an altitude, gets caught up in a hurricane or something like those are those are horrifying. But ones where it's just like the pilots just were fixing a light. They weren't watching the instruments. Like to me, that's almost worse, you know. So were there like systemic instrumental or like observational changes that came out of this incident where people trained to only have one person trying to replace a light bulb at a time. Like tell <laughs> well, me something starters, happened so that this yes. is not going to happen again. So for starters, um, no autopilot in the universe is designed like that. Thank anymore. you. Um, once an autopilot is set, you have to physically unlock it from its set position to change anything about it. Okay. Um, and also, uh, as a direct result of this, um, air, airline crews are issued flashlights in case of emergency. Okay. That was my other question. Because it seems like yes. that's such a basic piece right. of equipment. Yeah. Like not even emergency equipment. Sure. Like if you need Just to look equipment, under equipment. seat or, yeah. I don't know, a light bulb goes out, you want a flashlight. Okay. Right. Right. Also, I think there are steps in place where it's easier for a crew to determine their landing gear um, they're not just reliant on their instrumentation. It feels like we should have some kind of a video camera or something. Right. Um, yeah. And we're not relying on a guy to stick his head out of the bottom of the plane to think. <laughs> That's just me. It doesn't sound No, I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, yeah. I will I mean, get up on my... I mean, that's not exactly... I will get up on my plane crash soapbox and remind you that yes. it is a good idea to listen to the flight attendants when they do the safety briefing yes. because 50% of all plane crashes are survivable. Yes. And you have the responsibility to know where the exits are so that you don't needlessly die. And keep in mind, like, this was 1972. Like, people were still smoking on planes. People still had this was the early uh, their days. pets yeah. on a plane. You want to know one of the craziest survivors of this was a poodle. Oh, no. A woman had her poodle with her on the plane. Uh, she died. The poodle survived. Okay. In fact, the poodle, the poodle being, um, it was literally one of the first, like, recovered 
things from this because the poodle was just like running around. So people were like, oh my gosh, a dog survived. That is wild. So that was weird. So it's it's a wild story. It's deeply unsettling, yeah. especially to have so many like, I mean, these guys were all veteran pilots. Mm-hmm. Like they they had logged. I mean, Loft had logged over twenty nine thousand air hours. Yeah. Like he knew what he was doing. And what's interesting to me is like, obviously, there's no way to to attach emotion to these. But I was reading through the transcripts of the of the the flight recorder. It's very spooky. The part that you read. He sounds. It, Loft comes off as sounding just so irritated mm-hmm. that they weren't allowed to land. Like he was like, I know the landing gear's down, the lights just not coming on, but they have to do the safety check. Mm-hmm. And he's just just like, I mean, he's he's kind of cussing up a storm. He's kind of being really short with everybody. He just seemed like somebody who just really was like, you know what? I'm done. I'm at the end of my day. I just want to go home. And you know how you know how all like car crashes happen. Like not all, but you know how like a, a disproportionate amount of car crashes happen within like a mile of somebody's like own home mm-hmm. kind of st- statistics. It's like I kind of wonder if he like just sort of ducked his head under the dashboard, so to speak, to try to get the light bulb fixed, j- just because he was like, "Look, this is so stupid. I just want to get this done." Because it, it, it seems weird to have two pilots in pilot seats, none of them, neither of them, looking at the instruments. Like, that seems really weird to me. So, I don't know. It's not like these flight recorders are great insights into human nature, but it, it just, he comes off as somebody who is just, like, really, really frustrated with the whole situation. And, like, it, I know I make a lot of mistakes when I get really frustrated at, at things, so I can definitely, like, empathize with that. But it sounds also like it happened really quickly. Oh, God, yeah. Um, it was, it was... It was really fast. It wasn't so fast that they noticed the descent. That's yeah. the, that's the tricky part. Like descending so slowly, that's just horrifying. Because they weren't that high uh, when they realized the problem with the light bulb, right? Right. Because they had their landing right. gear. Right. Yeah. Down. They were they were they were coming in for a landing at about nine hundred feet. The light bulb wouldn't light up. Air traffic told them to come back, circle around, and told them to climb to two thousand feet. But still, going from 2,000 feet to the ground in under 10 minutes, you'd think you'd notice it, but you just don't when it's that smooth. Um, oh, uh, a last little factoid. There is one L-1011 still in service. Ooh. It is called the Stargazer. Nice. And it is the mothership launch pad for the Pegasus launch vehicle. What does that mean? So uh, the Pegasus is, an, is the... Um, launch vehicle that's operated by Northrop Grumman and it shoots stuff up into orbit. So it's like so a high altitude plane? It's a high altitude plane that fires uh that has fired over a hundred satellites up into orbit. Very cool. It is the only L ten eleven still in service today. Does it have a so, good autopilot? Uh one would hope, yes. Do the light bulbs work? The light bulbs sure do. So yeah, neat little thing. It's part of a space program now. All right. Here at Relative Disasters, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our story today, a more complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. 
You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com, or if you'd like to share some insights we missed or just shame us publicly. You do. Why not use our Instagram, at relative.disasters. Big thanks to everyone who follows us on Instagram. You guys are the best. Yeah. Yeah, that's fun. Um, A big thank you to our patrons who support us at Relative Disasters Podcast on Patreon. This week's episode was brought to you by Beth. Beth. Our Relative Disasters Air Traffic Safety Control Officer. Nice work. And Lynn. Lynn. Our official airboat mechanic. Nice. Keep some running. Get some frogs, I bet. Yes, lots of frogs. Uh, I'd like to thank I'd like to thank uh, a few uh, listeners for writing in with their thoughts. Uh, I'd like to thank um, folks for continuing to send in their their interesting ideas for new episodes. Um, we are nearly at the end of our current season, but we are certainly adding more things to the list for for next year. Yeah, we've got some great suggestions. Um... I have about a half a dozen stories that I'm really excited to cover next Oh, at least. Yeah. 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 There's been some really great suggestions. So thank you, all of you. Uh, Keep them coming. And and we always enjoy the uh, feedback, whether it's through messages on Patreon, whether it's emails, whether it's fun stuff on Instagram. Um, You guys letting us know how we're doing really helps us, uh, I guess, know know how we're doing. (laughs) Um, it helps us make the podcast better I think is the point (laughs) it sure does it absolutely does so thank you and thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion and please join us next time for another strange dangerous and interesting event from history well my sister is returning in triumph here selecting our next disaster what's it going to be Ella? well we have another transportation disaster Greg Uh, We are going all the way back to 1910 to talk about the deadliest avalanche in American history, the one that occurred at Wellington, Washington. Oh. Yep. I know nothing about this. I'm interested in learning. Nobody does. Okay. It is my mission to tell everybody how horrible (laughs) and horrifying this story was. Okay. All right. Well, um, great, I guess. (laughs) Well, I'm looking forward to hearing it from you. All right. Thanks.